Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming tonight to the Commonwealth Club's Marine Conversations. My name is Bruce Robbie. I'm on the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club, and my company, Relevant Wealth Advisors, is one of the, the sponsors of this series. Tonight is another sold-out event, so thank you all for making that possible. Tonight, our, we're kicking off our fall event. Uh, we have uh, Reed Hunt tonight, who is out with a new book, came out in April, I believe. Uh, we also have Brad DeLong here, who worked with the uh, Treasury Department, and he's currently a professor at Cal. And finally, Joshua Cohen's here. He's the editor of the Boston Review. Reed, Brad, Brad and Joshua are going to take from here. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's great to see everybody. Uh, as Bruce uh, mentioned, my name is uh, Josh Cohen. I work at Apple University and also at UC Berkeley, like uh, Brad. Uh, but I'm here neither in my Apple or Berkeley capacity, but as editor of Boston Review, which I've been doing since 1991, uh, it's, which is it's a digital and uh, print journal of political, literary, and uh, cultural ideas. And I'm really... Uh, pleased and privileged that Boston Review has been able to uh, be a partner on this uh, important program tonight. So the the topic for tonight about reassessing neoliberalism is of longstanding and continuing interest to us at Boston Review. In fact, this past summer, uh, we published a special issue. It's called uh, Economics After Neoliberalism. And at Boston Review, we have a basic commitment. And if I may break in, it's yes, truly excellent and wonderful. And you all yes, should you go read it in. on the web. Um, it has, of the four authors in it, it has Suresh Naidu, who's a student and may well be the best student um, I've had. It has Danny Roderick, who is certainly not a student, but rather one of my masters in the Obi-Wan Kenobi sense. Um, that is a master craftsman who I've tried to learn from. And Gabriel Zuckman, who is a colleague at Cal. And then there's Lenore Palladino, who I've never met, and you need to introduce me sometime. Yeah, I will. I'll be happy to do that, especially after what you just said. I'd be, I'd be happy to do anything for you after what you just said. <laughs> um, yeah, they wrote the uh, – Suresh Danny and uh, Gabriel Zuckman wrote the lead article in the issue, which makes a very powerful case for what they call an – economics of inclusive prosperity as an alternative to the market fundamentalism that we associate with uh, neoliberalism. Uh, now, since the Great Recession, I think we've all seen pretty clearly the limits of uh, neoliberalism. And now with the 2020 election approaching, there's a growing sense within but not limited to the Democratic Party that it's uh, the right time for some deeper thinking about the limits of uh, neoliberal economics. And in fact, I, I feel very pleased to say that in the, um, this issue of Boston Review, in response to uh, Suresh and Danny and Gabriel, we had a, responses from a dozen important thinkers, including uh, Oren Cass, who was Mitt Romney's policy advisor in 2012, and Caleb Orr, who's a current policy advisor to Marco Rubio. And while they were both in pretty deep disagreement with the lead article, 
uh, they also shared in their own ways a sense of skepticism about the merits of the kind of market fundamentalism that's dominated public discourse uh, for the past 40 years. So that's our topic. Uh, and the uh, I'm going to be in conversation with these uh, uh, two guys, uh, both already introduced. Uh, but the reason that they're here, aside from their longstanding contributions to these issues, is they both made waves this past year by raising large questions about, large and different questions about neoliberalism. So, Reed, you heard some of Reed's credentials. I know Reed some, and what I would say is Reed's main credential is that he is a deeply publicly engaged citizen. Uh, he was the head of the FCC under President Clinton, served on the Clinton and Obama transition teams, and he's been actively at work for a while trying to do something good about the Electoral College, and he's the author of this book, A Crisis uh, Wasted, uh, which is a wonderful uh, book. Uh, Brad, as you've heard, economist at Berkeley, deputy assistant treasury secretary in the Clinton administration, and next year he's got what I'm sure is going to be a fantastic book coming out on the economic history of the United States from 1870 to 2016, more or less the 20th century in this long sense. Um, and uh, we were able, I was very pleased that we were able to provide copies of this special issue of Boston Review for the first 50 people who registered. And if you didn't get one of those, send me a note. I'll happily uh, provide you with one. So Reed is going to start us off, and I'm going to ask a question, and then Reed is going to say whatever he wants to say. Um, so... The book is called A Crisis Wasted, and the cr- title gestures at a comment made by Rahm Emanuel, actually echoing Paul Romer. Uh, Rahm Emanuel said, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And the main thesis of the book is that the Obama administration violated that principle. So maybe you could start us off by saying whatever you feel like, but uh, something in the neighborhood of uh, what were the creative uses of the crisis that were wasted? Why did they waste them? And I feel like this is an exam question now. Please say where neoliberalism fits into the story. So, Thank you, you, Josh. Thanks uh, to all of you. Uh, Yes, I was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, and the first thing I learned there was to ignore the question. Um, So uh, you can ask it again of Brad uh, later. Um, Let me me make uh, what we call opening remarks. Um, Go, go. Thank you. So first of all, uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I am from the entertainment capital of the United States, Washington, D.C., and currently we are running uh, as our main feature a show called Sharpie and the Gang. Um, And uh, you have to uh, uh, permit me this. I want to give some shout-outs to my wife, Betsy, and yes, she has to raise her hand here, and my son, Adam, who's also there, and my daughter, Sarah, and my future son-in-law, Kyle. And so we really did swell the crowd here. Thank you very much. Uh, and Adam's girlfriend, Aaron, and his mother, Betsy, her mother, Betsy, uh, and Adam's friend, Josh. So that's a lot of comps 
and they've had a lot of your wine already, and thank you very, very uh, much. And I recommend that you all uh, keep drinking. Now, um, make sure you applaud at the right moment. That's right. <laughs> I also want to thank you, Josh, for that, uh, that kind introduction. Uh, when I was in the FCC, I was introduced once by somebody who uh, took an article from the Washington Post. That's a small regional newspaper now owned by a fabulously wealthy person. Uh, And he read the following from the paper. I give you Reed Hunt, aloof and arrogant. (laughs) This is a true story. And I went home to my wife, who's a psychologist, and actually all spouses of presidential appointees are psychologists. Uh, So I went home and I said to her, uh, he just called me aloof and arrogant. And she said, honey, if you're arrogant, you're doing people a favor to be aloof. (laughs) So anyhow, thank you for your introduction. Um, uh, you, you're, you're wrong about the title. You'll, I hope you don't make any other mistakes. Uh, the title actually uh, comes from, it is true that Rahm Emanuel said that. You weren't wrong about that. But the title actually comes from an axiom of the iconic Silicon Valley uh, CEO, Andy Grove. Uh, and that axiom was, never waste a crisis. And he specifically said the following, bad companies are destroyed by a crisis. Good companies survive them great companies are improved by them. The United States is a good country, and uh, we survived the crisis, the crisis of 2008 and 2009. And if you remember back uh, in that time period, uh, if you were worried about the value of your house or worried about whether you would keep your job or worried about the future of the economy, uh, then you shared that concern with everyone in the country and with actually everyone uh, in the Western world. The number one mission of the uh, incoming Obama team, and I was on that transition team, the number one mission was uh, stated often, uh, but I think in retrospect wrongly, to be the following. We just need to avoid a Great Depression. That was stated to be the number one mission. What did we get? Well, we didn't get what a great country would want to get, which is improvement. And it is not just an irony that eight years later, the current president ran with the slogan of Make America Great Again. He, Without question, he did not know anything about Andy Grove's axiom. Uh, That part is absolutely sure. But um, whatever my wife might diagnose to be his condition, the following is true. He, He has an uncanny instinct. For, a, uh, for summarizing something that many, many people respond to, specifically in November of 2016, 63 million people. So what did we get? Um, and I'm going to uh, take about eight or nine minutes here and, and give you my, the... Well, you won't have to read the book, so look at it that way. Um, uh, what did we got? A long, slow, and inequitable recovery. It killed the American dream for most people. It greatly increased income and wealth equality, and it left... Our country, uh, this, the title of this is Neoliberalism and Its Discontents. Uh, the discontents are manifest. Uh, we see them everywhere. We seem to have a nation of discontented, uh, angry, uh, hostile. Uh, race comes up in every conversation or in every mind, even when uh, some people manage to bite their tongues. And it hasn't been like this for years. How did we get here? Okay, well, what it says in this book is that we got here because we were, uh, we, meaning the decision makers between September of 2008 
and January of 2009, just in those four months, were done in by thinking that had seemed right for two or three decades. And then in the crisis proved tragically wrong, and what I'm talking about is neoliberalism. Well, the former French ambassador to the United States, uh, Gerard Arrow, um when he left uh, his post about a month ago, uh, he said that he'd come in to the government in France during the Reagan administration, he was going out in the Trump administration, and that his career defined the era of neoliberalism, and then he defined it uh, in, in the following way. It's the following set of views. Taxes are bad. Borders are bad. You have to trust the market. And the West is sure to be dominant. That's a pretty crisp, that's a pretty crisp summary. Uh, there's a theologian named Adam Kotzko uh, who adds more to it and takes it into different dimension and says it is not just a mode of economics. It is not just a way to think about policy. It is politically and culturally a moral order. Well, what I'm going to do right now, if you'll forgive me, um, is I'm going to summarize the uh, four main pieces of advice that were given uh, to uh, Barack Obama that are the substance of neoliberal thinking. And then... You're answering my question. Oh, oh, he figured that out. (laughs) He figured that out. That's amazing. I'm so glad you're answering my question. It was a roundabout way of doing it. It was a roundabout way. Um, these, thank you very much. Uh, these were the main uh, pieces of advice. Number one, the primary thing to do in the crisis was to recapitalize the financial sector. That was the, that was the view. To recapitalize it for the following reason. The people running the financial sector were the right ones to make a decision about where all investments should be made. Meaning... No one in the government should be involved in a decision like that. Okay, that was the first piece of advice. The second piece of advice, it is extremely important that we minimize the amount of federal spending and not run up a deficit that is any bigger than the one that simply has to be incurred by spending the smallest amount of money possible on recapitalizing the financial sector and just enough money to make sure that we don't lose the election in 2010. Meaning all the thinking was, what is the least that we can do? Why is that? Because the fundamental view, Brad was in the Clinton administration and the Treasury Department and part of the team that formed this view in 1993, the fundamental view was, I'll simplify it, he can give it to you in the more sophisticated way, the fundamental view was, Every dollar uh, spent by the federal government that represented borrowing was money that should have been borrowed by somebody in the private sector to invest in something smarter, by definition. Okay, number three, uh, the view was the following. This was the advice given to the, income, to the candidate and then the incoming president. Number three, the burden of coping with the business downturn, with the loss of a job, with the loss of a home, with the evaporation of personal wealth, all that burden should be imposed on people and businesses on an individualized basis. Everyone had to deal with it on their own. There weren't going to be new institutions created where people would come together and do something as a group. 
it was an atomistic view about what to do. And lastly, the solutions to the dire problems of costly health care, unceasing climate change, and unaffordable college education. All those solutions depended on teaching consumers to be better shoppers. I'm not really making this up. If you remember back, that was the idea of the uh, Affordable Care Act. You would be a better shopper for health care insurance. That was the idea of the cap-and-trade bill. When you saw that uh, the price of carbon would be incorporated into the price of electricity, then you would shop for solar panels to be on your roof. This is an atomistic view of how the economy would work. And then with respect to education, you would be able to choose uh, the charter school or the public school. You would see ratings. You would see test scores. It was all about creating markets in which uh, consumers and users would drive the change. And then there was one more thing. Um, The historian Adam Tooze has written this. Remember I mentioned the theologian who said there was a moral dimension to this? Uh, Tooze says the following, quote, Neoliberalism was dishonest. It proclaimed the absolute adherence to the rule of the market only to fall back on massive state intervention when necessary. He's talking about the bailout of the banks. And then he said, quote, it is anti-democratic. It limits the range of democratic discretion and interferes directly in the democratic process. Why? That, that's a very generalized statement. I'll give a specific, a more specific, um, more, um, let's just say, experience-based statement. The fundamental view of the advisors to President Bush, who was outgoing, and President Obama coming in, was the following. The workings of the economy are incredibly complex. The workings of the Fed are mysterious and complex. Uh, the way that money is managed by the combination of the Fed and Wall Street is really indecipherable, although we, under, we understand it, but it's in, it can't be easily explained. Consequently, it is very important not to make the effort to explain it, because if you were to bring people, and even worse, elected officials, I'm really not making this up, into the discussion, then they might meddle with the machinery. And meddle with the machinery means that it wouldn't work efficiently to allocate capital and to allocate wealth. Consequently, the fundamental principle, this is why Tu says this, the fundamental principle was let's not be open and candid about what we're doing. Now, are there examples of this? This is my conclusion. Thank you for your patience. Uh, yes, there are examples. Um, here's the first example. The financial crisis... Uh, many will remember this, uh, was um, triggered. Well, it had many, many uh, antecedents, but the seminal moment, the thing that really made it serious was the bankruptcy of Lehman on September 15th. It is now clear that the Treasury Secretary Paulson and the head of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, knew that Lehman was going to go bankrupt and decided to let it go bankrupt decided not to take the steps that would have saved it. And they did this because they wanted a Democratic president, excuse me, presidential candidate, and a Democratic Congress to 
be forced because of the emergency of the financial crisis that would follow the bankruptcy. They wanted them to be forced to pass a bill that gave $700 billion of spending authority to the Treasury Secretary. They wanted responsibility to be shifted to the very people who were never supposed to be told the real workings of the system. That is the absence of candor. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, in uh, early December of 2008, uh, a great economics professor who's a uh, colleague of Brad's, uh, Christy Romer, uh, did an analysis of how much government spending would be necessary to get everyone back to full employment in a reasonably rapid time period. Uh, she did the math, and she calculated $1.7 trillion, about 12.5% of the GDP of the United States. And she met with the other people who were the advisors to the president, and they all agreed that they uh, would not tell uh, President-elect Obama that number, would not tell him that number. Then she said, as a backup, how about if we put in the decision memo 1.2? It's not as much, but it's less, 60%. They said, no, we don't want to put that in there either. Oh, the highest number you're going to show him is $800 billion. That's a big enough number, and that's about the same as the money for the bailout of the banks, and that's what we call rough justice here in Washington. And then they did the rest of the math, and they calculated that that would just barely bring the unemployment rate down below 8% by the midterms of November of 2010, and that's the plimsoll line in electoral politics. If unemployment is below 8% and dropping at the time of the election, you're going to hold your seat. And if it isn't, you're going to lose your seat. This is not a coincidence. None of this is a coincidence, right? This is not an example of an open discussion, even with the president-elect. <laughs> That's uh, number two. And here's number three. Even while that was going on, even while, according to the calculations of Professor Romer, the American people were going to be shortchanged, and the recovery would be disappointing. Even while that was going on, the Fed was in the process of loaning somewhere close to $3 trillion. Just to remind you of the numbers, she said we should spend $1.7 trillion to get everybody back to work. No, that wouldn't do. We could only tell the president-elect that it could be $800 billion. Meanwhile, two blocks away, the Fed is loaning what turned out to be $3 trillion. Where did that money go? That money went to a list of something like 100 different entities, banks in Europe, banks are all around the world, Japan, banks in the United States, other financial institutions. And the reason the Fed did it is that if the Treasury had been involved, the Treasury under the law would have had to report it to Congress. But the Fed didn't have to. This was the lack of candor also. <laughs> now, why? This isn't because these people were naturally mendacious. This is the conclusion. It is because the mentality that we're now calling neoliberalism convinced them of the following, no good will come of explaining this to anyone. <laughs> it's too hard. The reporters won't ever get it. And then they'll distort it. If we went down to Congress and they explained it, and we explained we were loaning a trillion dollars to Europeans, you can imagine what they would do. There's some truth to this, but it's fundamentally not open. That's an attribute of neoliberalism. It's not an accident. I, I want to just... Um...
I want to call out two, uh, two points and then uh, invite Brad to speak to these issues. Um, the first, uh, which we can come back to, is you know, in the you refer to Adam Tooze in his book Crashed, which is a fantastic book. The three trillion story is what for him makes Bernanke the hero of saving the world economy. Um, now, uh, maybe a, her- a, a hero with a lack of candor, but that is the story of the two's book. But I want to... Well, em- can I just interrupt and say, that's yeah. not normally the definition of hero, hero with a lack of candor, right? <laughs> I'm not saying it was the wrong thing to do. Yeah. But to say, I'm going to be a hero, but I the condition is that no one should know what I'm doing... I- That's the second point. Okay, sorry. Thank you for making the second point. Um, The second point, and I just want to underscore what you said, is that the lack of candor is, in your telling, it's not a personal trait. It's not a matter of personal morality. It's tied to the fundamental idea that neoliberal, to his other fundamental idea, that neoliberalism is fundamentally lacking in democratic conviction. Another point that we'll come back to. Brad, you wrote something earlier this year. I think it was initially on Twitter, um, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm the biggest fan of. Uh, I think Twitter is great because people like Brad say uh, interesting things on it. And you said, in essence, that center-left neoliberals like you me. Uh, needed to stand aside and let people to your left, uh, including Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, among others, play a larger role in the Democratic Party. And here was the headline sentence. So the baton rightly passes to our colleagues on the left. We are still here, but it is not our time to lead. So explain your thing. Why did you conclude that the, that the baton should pass? Um... Well, I stand by that, and I would actually stress it more. That is one of the, say, one of the things about centrist democratic policymaking, starting with Bill Clinton and continuing pretty much all the way through the Obama administration, was a search for partners, some political partners to our right, with the idea that the truly durable right, social democratic advances in America have come from assembling a very broad coalition in which the center-right buys in and buys into the goal, buys into most of the mechanisms, maybe not all of them, but puts its name on the bottom line. So much so that when Dwight D. Eisenhower was president in the 1950s and people would write to him about how now was the time to roll back the New Deal to eliminate Social Security, to get rid of the National Labor Relations Act, um, to get rid of unemployment insurance, he let off steam by writing to his brother a letter about how there are such people, but they are negligible and they are stupid. Right? Um, that that's not what America is going to do, and that Eisenhower, um, even though Eisenhower was a pretty hard-right guy at his core himself, viewed his task as president as being well to work for the American people, to be the steward of the system that they had gotten their legislatures to create and which commanded fairly broad assent. And so when Bill Clinton came into office... 
right? His ideas was that he would kind of try to follow through on this particular direction, that he would take what he thought were the best policies, what his staff thought were the best policies, and then he would take two steps to the right, right, making the policies thus less good from a social democratic, technocratic, equitable growth point of view, in order to get buy-in you know, from the right. So he would have a large deficit reduction program um, with some public investments and some redistributive programs attached, what those of us total nerds refer to as OBRA 1993, which, among other things, gave Reed, almost accidentally, enormous power to shape the world of telecommunications as he wished for quite a while at the FCC, Um, that OBRA was essentially round two of what George H.W. Bush had done with his deficit reduction deal in 1991. Um, Then, second on Clinton's priorities was going to be the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, because George H.W. Bush had negotiated it, because the Mexican president really, really wanted it, and the Mexican ruling party really, really wanted it, and will ignore for a fact, for a moment, the fact that the legitimate president of Mexico back then was not sitting in the presidential palace in Mexico City, but was Coatemec Cardenas, the president over the water, as they used to say back in novels of the Highland Revolts of Scotland in the 1700s, um, from whom the election had been stolen. And third, because Treasury Secretary Lloyd Benson had come from the Texas-Mexico border and very strongly felt that integrating those economies would be a very good thing for all concerned, and NAFTA was a core Republican priority uh, back then. So, you know, Bill Clinton aligned with the Democratic Center, looking for Republican partners on his deficit reduction program, then switched sides and actually had Newt Gingrich be his legislative floor leader on NAFTA with the Democratic leader, Dick Gephardt, going into opposition. And Clinton begged Gephardt, please not to put the opposition too strongly, not to pull out all the stops because we'll be doing other things together later on. And the third, of course, would be a market-friendly health care plan Um, which would win the assent and, in fact, the enthusiastic assent of Senator Robert Dole, the Republican leader, because Senator Dole had come back from World War II injured, had had to rely on charity for his rehabilitative care, and thought very strongly that America did a very bad job of ensuring that people who needed it could get health insurance and that this ought to be fixed. And so Bill Clinton put forward these three legislative bids and waited to be a kind of consensus purple America president. Um, Well, not a single Republican would vote for round two of the deficit reduction bill that they had enthusiastically backed when Republican President George H.W. Bush had been proposing it two years before. Um, Republicans did vote for NAFTA, but they kept trashing the pieces of it that Clinton brought forward because they were too friendly to unions and to the environment. Um, And on to health care, oh boy. Um, We in the Treasury had been confident until kind of August of 1994 that Republican opposition to health care reform was all dingbat kabuki. Um, that Robert Dole wanted to end his legislative career with a big capstone success, 
that he sincerely believed um, that national health insurance could be done and could be done in a market-friendly way. Um, and, in fact, his chief of staff, Sheila Burke, was one of the most accomplished technocratic health care experts um, in the world back then, and someone who, if she was not at her core a single-payer advocate, kind of hit it well, even though she worked for a Republican senator. Um, but no votes for OBRA, um, no give on NAFTA to fit labor and environmental or readjustment concerns. And then on health care, you know, well, Bob Dole decided that he would rather go into full opposition in the hopes of getting enough midterm seats won in 1994 that they could then block anything Clinton did in 95-96 and portray him as a failed president when Dole ran against him for the presidency in 1996. Something that had maybe one chance in five of working out and in fact did not. Um, and you know, that came as a big shock. You know, what we thought were our negotiating partners um, to our right simply vanished completely. Um, and ever since then, in Clinton's second term, in Obama's first term, he kept chasing and chasing and chasing the bipartisan deal. Right? That the Affordable Care Act. You know, it wasn't a democratic single-payer Medicare for all. It wasn't offer anyone, everyone the chance to buy into Medicare for all. It wasn't even offer anyone who wants to a chance to buy into the Federal Employees Health Benefit Program, which is a very nice program and which would be a good way to get people to vote with their feet for a program that has less administrative waste in it. Instead, they took the plan that Mitt Romney had developed when he and signed when he was governor of Massachusetts and said, that's going to be Obamacare. Romney's probably going to be their presidential candidate in 2012. They can't be against his own signature legislative initiative in his state. He can't be against it. Well, lo and behold, he was. Similarly, cap and trade was John McCain's climate plan in the 2008 election. They can't be against that. You know, well, they were. Uh, ben Bernanke is a lifelong South Carolina Republican um, as chairman of the Fed. Um, giving him the baton to fix the recession, they can't be against that. You know, they were. Um, Simpson and Bowles as chairs of a deficit reduction commission. Um, oh, of course they'll sign on for that. Um, in fact, at the end, I think Obama was willing to give up $4 in federal spending for each dollar in tax increases in order to cut the deficit back in 2010, 2011, and 2012, even though unemployment was still so high that cutting the deficit made absolutely zero economic sense at all. And yet, even with a four-to-one ratio, rather than the one-to-one -one ratio that we had been proposing back in 1993, the Republicans would not bite because they thought the most important thing was for them to be able to portray Obama to the country, not as a purple America president, but as a loser president. Um, I won't go into why Republicans thought this was such a high priority then. Um, I will say that since 2012, 
our technocratic negotiating partners in the center-right you know, have vanished completely. And that now, as a kind of centrist Democrat who wants to see equitable growth, who kind of likes markets, who has called himself a card-carrying neoliberal, um, I look at who you might partner with and set forward plans to try to persuade the American people and a critical legislative majority to vote for them. Um, I look to my left, and I see the Democratic left, and they're smart. Maybe they're unrealistic. Some of their ideas certainly need to be road-tested in one way or another. But they're honest and honorable and seek the good of America. And, you know, I look to the right, and I see rubble, and I see chaos. And I look further to the right, and I see more rubble and more chaos. And I look further to the right, and I see someone like Wilbur Ross, who had a reputation once, who now is busy threatening to fire um, technocratic officials at the National Weather Service if they dare to say that the hurricane's path did not include Alabama. <laughs> Alabama. And I look further to the right, and I see other people making even worse compromises. I see Ken Cuccinelli saying that the, in the Statue of Liberty was built, the people coming to America were Europeans. Well, actually, he's right and he's wrong. Um, when the Statue of Liberty was built, the immigrants to America came Germany, from Germany, from Britain, from Canada, from Ireland, from Sweden, from France. I think in seventh place comes Italy. But the first six are from Scandinavia and Northwest Europe, that the big waves of Italians didn't come until the 1890s and the 1900s, um, that it wasn't Europeans. It was Northwest Europeans with not even half the number of melanin genes as your typical Italian. And that Cuccinelli, um, Cuccinelli's ancestors would have been shut out by what Cuccinelli says the policies that ought to have been in place at the time uh, the Statue of Liberty was erected, were in fact erected, and he's too stupid and knows too little about the history to know that. Um, so, basically, we discuss policy with the people to our left, we try to evolve good plans, we try to put them to the American people to win legislative assent, as Mayor Pete said when I saw him last week, we go beyond and around the Republican legislators because Obama's key mistake was to presume good faith on the part of Republican legislators. And we go directly to the Republican voters um, who are indeed distressed and distraught and not seeing the America they thought and want to make America great again. Um, but at the moment, they are simply being semi-hypnotized by a president whose idea of making America great again is to have the Department of Defense pay him for um, U.S. military personnel staying in and near his hotels. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, I was supposed to be the calm-minded technocrat tonight while Reed yeah, was well, supposed to be. You just blew your top there. I, yeah, blame, the yeah. I blame the triple latte. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. not sure if it's better yeah. living through chemistry, you, but surely you, it's you, living. You blame the triple latte, I'll blame Cuccinelli. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Um, uh, so we actually have two uh, different stories on the table uh, about uh, policy making under Clinton and Obama. And I want to draw attention for the purposes of conversation to the contrast between them. One story is that there is an inherited commitment to neoliberalism as what was the phrase, a political, uh, cultural, moral model. Uh, And that was shared by Clinton, and it was shared by Obama, and that's what they were trying to execute on. Brad, you tell a different story, which is that it's an unbroken record of political miscalculation uh, by in the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, an unbroken record of political miscalculation about whether there were good faith partners to the right. Well, is I that, would, is I that would a fair say, statement of the disagreement? I would actually say there's not much disagreement. You know that starting and out is that what, because you think that no, political that, miscalculation is another feature of neoliberalism, or that, no? That starting out yeah, from what yeah. you think is a center Democrat, social Democratic perspective, and then taking two steps to the right to win coalition partners in the belief that they will then have buy-in to the programs and will honestly administer it in the future, um, and so make concessions to a more market-friendly system. Um, that seems to be exactly what Reed was talking about as the dominant view of what policy should be. Yes, but it was... And but, the, only but it was... Question, the only question was whether the adoption of neoliberalism by the center-left was the result of a belief that this was the best of all possible worlds mm-hmm. that we would set forth in the Republican of Plato, Republic of Plato, or whether it was the fact that it was the very best we could do to try to make progress given that instead we live, as Cicero said, not in the Republic of Plato, but in the sewer of Romulus. Yeah, but but, but it depended, it depended in your telling, as and I'll just restate this, on an unbroken record of political miscalculation uh, by two of the most successful Democratic politicians... uh, Uh, Mm -hmm. the two most successful Democratic politicians of the past 50 years. So it wasn't conviction. It was miscalculation. Uh, I agree with you that taking two steps to the right to deepen the uh, roots of a set of policies and make them lasting policies makes sense to do. But in the world that you're describing, that was delusional. And is it? Um, and do you really think that? I mean, maybe it was delusional. But Reed, you have a different story. It wasn't delusional. It was uh, a matter of the convictions that Clinton had and that uh, Obama had. It was a set of three basic convictions. First of all, an individualist conviction about the importance of responsibility, choice, and by the way, I'll add 
blame, which is the dark side of that, which goes with mass incarceration. So individualism with its cheerful story about responsibility and choice and its ugly story about blame, finger-wagging blame and incarceration. That's one. Secondly, a commitment to market fundamentalism. And third, a lack of conviction about democracy. That lack of conviction itself, the product probably of two sources. One, which you alluded to, which is the Hayekian idea that people who are making central decisions don't know enough to be making those decisions in an effective way. And the second is a very deep and widespread disagreement among people. So the idea of coming together and making a collective decision about a direction is uh, at best improbable and uh, at worst destructive. Something like that. Those are the convictions of neoliberalism as you describe it. And you think that um, the Democrats as well as Republicans have been executing on those convictions for 40 years, not based on an unbroken record of political miscalculation. I mean, I'm over-exaggerating the differences, but it will make the conversation more interesting. And also, it gives me something to say. Um, (laughs) But Reed thinks there's a large current of thought and belief that is almost irresistible, or that was almost irresistible. Um, As, indeed, Adam Tooze does in his excellent book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. And indeed, as Adam Kotzko does in his also excellent book, Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of Late Capital. But I should warn you to read Adam's book. It's a very difficult book, and you have to be a postmodern theologian, I think, to understand it. And I'm not, and I only, I only one, no, Adam Kotzko, I only one third understand it. Um, you know, um, whereas what I see are the failures of technocrats to think deeply enough and be smart enough and to be convincing enough. You know, that Paul Krugman back in 1998 laid down a marker um, that Japan is a fire bell in the night for the United States and Western Europe and shows that the possibility of a Great Depression-like thing returning is indeed a live one, and should it come back, then all of a sudden all the rules about fiscal prudence and about how you don't want to crowd out private investment, which is probably wisely directed, all of those go out the window when the interest rate that the central bank controls hits zero. And back then you have to say, all right, the market isn't charging the government anything to borrow. That's a very powerful sign and a very powerful sign from the marketplace that the government should print money, spend it, and buy things, borrow, spend, whatever, because, you know, the things that the market makes free are not scarce. And if borrowing money is free, then there is no no sense that there's any scarcity imposed anywhere in the system by having the government actually buy stuff in order to do useful things. And that we ought to have been able to make that case, you know, to Barack Obama, um, to Joe Biden, um, the other senior barons of the Democratic Party, 
And we should not have been in the position when in his 2010 State of the Union address, Barack Obama says that because American families have been tightening their belts, it's time for the government to tighten their belt. When the right thing for him to say, when all of the recognition that interest rates are zero was to say, is that when the private sector sits down and stops spending in order to keep people at work, it's time for the government to stand up and start spending to keep people at work. Um, These two perspectives are, I think, both um, equally true or equally false. But mine is the guy um, who thinks he could be sufficiently persuasive if only he could get a large enough audience, while Reeds and Adams and other Adams are very much the people watching the tides and thinking that no one in person or any group of individuals can resist the enormous intellectual, material, and ideal tides of history. So let me bring this to down a little closer to earth um, and ask, read in your um, telling, there's a decision made uh, by the Obama administration to give priority to health care reform. And part of the strategy of minimizing spending minim, uh, and, or, and, and of going for $800 billion rather than something bigger was let's do something that the minimum to take care of the financial crisis problem and f- that we have a limited number of things we can do, let's focus on health care. That's a little bit of a different story from either the committed neoliberalism story or the political miscalculation story, although it inherits pieces of both. Was that... I mean, you're not worried about your health insurance. I'm not worried about mine. Most people in this room aren't worried about theirs. But health care was an unsolved problem. Obama thought he could solve it. Was that such a bad thing to say, let's focus on health care and get that done? I mean, it fucked up. Well, first of all, my wife and I are not worried about health care because of Medicare. Right. Yeah. Um, And that is the essential point, (laughs) meaning uh, let's talk about health care. This is a nightmare of a topic, but I'll I'll try to be uh, crisp about it. Um, So I, I talked to everybody I could find here, and there's like 50 people whose interviews are, are reflected in here, and not my spin on them. I gave them the text, and I let them edit it. Uh, and, Brad, you might be interested. All the economists changed every word in every sentence, and all the politicians <laughs> said the following. If I said it, use it. What do I care? Yes. <laughs> that's, the, that's the approval process. Now, with respect to health care, um, uh, in March of 2008... Uh, Barack Obama, uh, who was just then close to wrapping up the nomination, gave a speech at the Cooper Union in New York, and he said, uh, the future of America depends on four critical structural reforms. We have to reform health care, we have to reform the financial sector, we have to reform education, and we have to reform energy. As I mentioned before, the, the general concept was that as markets, these did not work. That's as deep as he went, but it was a but it was a profound um, a statement, meaning uh, similar in its way to what Elizabeth Warren is saying now when she says the same thing. We need structural change. 
He was saying that in March of 2008. It's the same month that the Bear Stearns bailout signaled the future of the Lehman bankruptcy and told the in crowd, you know, we are in for really big trouble. And all that really big trouble, the economic crisis compounded by multiple times by the financial crisis, that's what got in the way of the structural reforms. That's the way they thought about it. Between the Lehman bankruptcy in September and the inauguration on January 20, the thought was we have to get the economic problem mm, not maybe completely solved, but it's not going to be a depression. And as soon as it could be under control, then we can move to the structural reforms. So he said, uh, this is a real uh, conversation, uh, according to Tim Geithner, who had been designated Treasury Secretary, Geithner said, Mr. President-elect, this is in uh, late November 2008, he says, Mr. President-elect, your legacy is going to be that you avoided a Great Depression. And he says that Obama said back to him, that's not enough for me. Well, this is a fundamental choice that, that was actually known because these are very smart people. They may not have used these words. It was a choice between either of the following two objectives for the presidency. Objective number one, the purpose of economic policy is to have a high and rising standard of living for all the citizens. Okay, that's actually uh, the first or the second sentence in a uh, book uh, um, uh, uh, called The Competitive uh, Comp- uh, Competition of Nations. Is that what it is? Uh, doesn't matter. The Competitiveness of Nations? Is that it? Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Bob Reich, that, that, that's Ryan the first Adams? sentence. That's the first sentence. No. A high and rising standard of living for all citizens. If that's your goal, then under the circumstances, that goal needed to be pursued consistently with massive force for quite some time. That was not the choice. That was not the choice. That was not the choice. No, the choice was all four of those reforms, and then they were sequenced. They were sequenced. And healthcare, uh, they chose to go first, and energy second, and education later, and finance last of all. And that's actually what happened, except for that energy was never passed, but that's what happened. So the point is the view, and I think it's utterly characteristic of neoliberalism, was this On a, to have a historic legacy. Everyone I've ever met in politics has actually wanted to have a legacy, right? They are, with possible exception of the incumbent, not in it for the money. Um, And so they actually want the history books to record that they made a difference. The decision, which I think is quintessential neoliberalism, is if we create different markets in these four areas, then it will produce on a very long-term basis something better as a society, right? Well, there's only two problems with that, uh, maybe three problems. Number one, if you're then going to have a decade of very disappointing and inequitable economic recovery, all of the other stuff is going to get washed away or never done. That's problem number one. (laughs) Problem number two, it's not really true that creating or tweaking markets is going to solve all problems of distribution, wealth creation, savings, and guarantee the American dream. And then problem number three is, and permit me to, to, to jump to this, problem number three is what problem are you really trying to solve when you say you're for structural reform? So a, a problem now that I think is easily understood and was understood then 
to be a global and potentially catastrophic is climate change. There is no consumers will do the right thing solution to climate change that possibly can be fast enough or big enough. What I'm saying is those kinds of statements of "Mm, this will be a legacy move, they're just not big enough to be legacy moves. They're just not bold enough. Now, one last thing, and this is very painful uh, to even to report, much less to to, 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 to have it be a historical fact. I told you that Christy Romer calculated that 12.5% of the GDP needed to be spent in the stimulus to have full employment. Uh, she did that the first week in November. One month earlier, the exact same calculation was done in Beijing. Uh, that calculation was done by an autocratic, engineer-dominated, utterly non-democratic state where they didn't even address the question of whether they would tell people what they were doing, because that was the first thing that everybody decided they would never do. So they did the exact same calculation. So in our country, we decided that we would spend 5% of the GDP to stimulate, even though we knew 125 was the right number. And what number do you think they picked in China? Oh, because guess what? The math was the math, and the numbers were the same all around the world, and the calculations were exactly the same. And they looked at the following problem. These are the numbers. They weren't all that known at the time, but they were soon known. They said, of our college graduates, this year 5.6 million won't get a job. Mm -hmm. Uh, The numbers are always bigger in China, as you may know. Uh, 5.6 million freshly educated college graduates, no job. That was 30% of all the college graduates. And they also said the following, in the mid-autumn holiday when 70 million workers go from the east to the west back to rural China, they said, here's the problem, we've done the math, only 56 million will have jobs waiting for them when they come back. You add those two things together, you have 20 million unemployed people in China, and that's for starters. So they decided everyone's going to get fully employed right away. The net outcome of all of this was that um, using American dollars and adjusting for the size of the economy, uh, the right way to think about it is that China, over the next four or five years, spent $4 trillion when we didn't. They overwhelmingly dedicated it to infrastructure. Uh, Many people for the last 11 years have said, oh, they'll really regret that. Has anyone here been uh, to China anywhere in the last 10 years and checked out the infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Any infrastructure at all, like, for example, the trains that don't exist in California, um, or uh, something you might or might not have looked at, the high-voltage power lines that bring solar and wind power from Mongolia to Shanghai. We don't have any high-voltage power lines in the United States. Barack Obama in December of 2008 said, where is my plan in the stimulus package to build a new electric grid? And they said, we can't afford it, and we can't do it. I'm saying that... That is an existence proof of an utterly autocratic, dictatorial, engineering-driven, math-based calculation that for the last 11 years has produced the following. Um, Brad knows all these numbers. He'll, he'll, he'll correct me. Uh, from 1945 until 2009, the United States investment in, domestically and globally drove the entire uh, global economy. And for the last 10 years, our place has been taken by China. Mm-hmm. And those are the numbers. 
and you read about it when you read about the Belt and Road Initiative or if you know anyone in Africa who's been pitched with the Chinese building a bridge or a road or a dam, those are all the real-time examples. That all comes from the decision made in that time period. So So I say the following. Wait a minute, is this our choice? We have the it-doesn't-work neoliberalism, or we can choose a, um, a statist uh, uh, authoritarian uh, democracy-suppressing uh, two-million Ouija-incarcerating uh, uh, regime. And those are our two choices? Those are our two choices? So could you guys think of a third choice? Yes, but uh, my responsibility is actually now to open up the conversation to you all And you may have answers to Reed's uh, question. So we're going to start with you on the uh, aisle. Thanks. Um, You know, when you talk about neoliberalism, it sounds like you have a very narrow historical frame. You're talking, you're starting with Clinton, kind of a reagan light person, Mm -hmm. and Obama. But if we go back to the New Deal and Franklin Delano Roosevelt... That was, after that, the real legacy builders was Henry Wallace, and they really chose Truman, the Democratic Party. So I think what you haven't talked about is class alliances. And the class alliances of the Democratic Party, according to Thomas Franks, who wrote uh, Listen Liberal and Whatever Happened to Kansas, was really about a shifting alliance from the Democratic Party since Roosevelt, in which they continued to disregard labor. So when you want to talk about why organized labor, which was so pro-Democrat and Roosevelt, eroded over the years. There are many factors involved, of course, globalism and other things. But let's not, affect, let's not confuse that also with that both the Republicans and the Democrats were neoliberal, and they both abandoned working, the working class. Now we have a more right-wing uh, kind of populism. But remember also, Obama ran as a populist, and he ended up being a backroom politician, very beholden to corporate interests. As a matter of fact, he got more money from Wall Street than any other politician in history. So here's a way um, to... I think you give Truman a bad rap on the grounds that Truman was very much for Medicare for all, and Truman was very much for a much stronger union movement that America had. He tried to fight tooth, half-heartedly mm-hmm. tooth and nail and failed simply because the American voters did not give him a Congress that would support him, but they, instead they gave it to Taft. Um, I think starting with Carter, um, especially after the AFL-CIO had refused to back George McGovern in 1972, Um, The Democratic Party's view was that organized labor is not so much on our side. If they preferred Richard Nixon to George McGovern in 1972, perhaps we should take seriously some of these ideas about how maybe trucking should be deregulated so Teamsters don't collect so much monopoly rents, etc., etc. But that that break has, say, two sources. Um, rather than necessarily being a democratic betrayal, Um, at least until you get to Bill Clinton. Um, And look, Bill Clinton is a guy from Arkansas. You know, guys from Arkansas, there never was very dense union penetration in Arkansas. It was very hard for him to feel what the union movement wanted, And whenever Bob Reich would bring union leaders into the Oval Office, 
and primed them by saying, now, you've been yelling at me for the past six months about X, Y, Z, and W, and I've been carrying your water. Now is your chance to yell at him about X, Y, Z, and W. Go in and do it. And, you know, instead, they're all smiles. They shake his hand. They ask for pictures. They ask for photo ops. Um, they then leave without having strengthened his position within the administration. Or at least that's how Bob Reich tells it around the faculty club at Berkeley. That, you know, um, there was an uphill row um, to hoe kind of there. Um, yeah. But more broadly, it certainly did not help that the leading, quote, journal of ideas on the Democratic Party, um, the New Republic during the 1970s and 1980s, hated unions um, only slightly less than they hated blacks, um, although I confess considerably less than they hated Arabs. Yeah. Um, so I, I just to put, I just want to just briefly underscore the importance of your comment, uh, while also agreeing with Brad's comments on the, the political history here. The importance of the comment is that if you look around the world, now think of all of the countries in the world that have union density anywhere near the American level, which is about 6% in the private sector, and um, uh, a, a reasonable level of inequality. That is not an extravagant level like you have in the United States. So where do you get low union density and a decent level of inequality? And the answer is nowhere. There does not exist a place in the world that has a level of inequality that people in this room would find reasonable and attractive that doesn't also have uh, union density that runs five or six or ten times what it is in the United States. And so if you are care about inequality, you should care about uh, the existence of higher union density, and uh, that begins with labor law reform. What I'm going to do now... Uh, is uh, bundle a few questions. Um, uh, I'll take three. We'll start with you, you, and you. Okay, go ahead. Um, I'm, I've really been fascinated, and uh, um, your comments uh, have really, uh, really, really enlightened me about the past, you know, two administrations economically. I'm wondering if there's another element in this um, uh, problem of a crisis wasted, and that is the failure to address widespread uh, corruption and malfeasance throughout the banking industry, the Wall throughout Wall Street, the Wall Street banks, in which you have managers looting their own institutions, willfully breaking laws, and acting in a in a totally corrupt manner manner without any simple justice. Economically, does the amount of debt, national debt, matter? If so, how does it matter and at what level? So, Reed, I know you've been working on the Electoral College. To what extent uh, does the operation of the Electoral College affect uh, what's happened and what do you think can be done about it? Well, let's leave the debt question to, to Brad. Um, that that's okay. I think if there's an expert on the, who ought to be answering that, I would say that would be Brad. So um, the 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 question of the banks. Okay, well, let me let me do it by telling you a a uh, a piece of the book, a couple pages in the book. 
So um, after the Lehman bankruptcy, uh, as I told you, uh, which was a which was a knowing act on the part of Paulson and Bernanke, uh, that was on Monday, and on Friday of the same week, Bernanke uh, went to Congress and said, uh, "If you don't um, if you don't pass this bill uh, by uh, right away by Monday, we won't have an economy." That's a pretty radical uh, statement by the head of the Fed. Uh, and uh, he's a very serious person, very serious economist, and, um, and, and, and all the Democratic leadership was paying attention. All the Democratic leadership was, was absolutely paying attention. Uh, so um, Polson sent them a, a um, piece of legislation that he had actually had drafted overnight, meaning not exactly Mr. Prepared here, but um, it said the following. Uh, Give me $700 billion, I'll do whatever uh, I want with it. And that's the bill that originally did not uh, pass. Uh, and then the stock market uh, dropped something like 8% in eight minutes. And uh, Henry Waxman, who was the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, said the following to me. He said, you know, when we saw the stock market crash because the bill didn't pass, then I realized, you know, sometimes we do do things here that are kind of important. Um, but this was the backwards way, right? Um, uh, to Brad's point, it didn't pass because the Republicans didn't want to own any responsibility. But let's not get into the, the back and forth. So they had to redraft the bill. So um, uh, Speaker Pelosi got uh, six or seven uh, members of the Democratic leadership team in her office, and they called uh, Bob Rubin, uh, the uh, uh, justly honored Secretary of the Treasury uh, uh, in the Clinton administration, and they got him on the phone. And they said the following, we need to get the votes uh, to pass this thing. Uh, this is the most unpopular legislation that Congress has ever passed. That's, by the way, true. Um, a remarkable uh, statement, but true. Um, and then they said to him, to, to uh, Secretary Rubin, what would really help us get the votes is if there was a provision in here that permitted us to deny the bonuses to the bankers. You talk about criminal prosecution. They just wanted to not have the... TARP money paid the bonuses. This is either true or false, but it is what Henry Waxman told me. Rubin said the following to us, if we don't pay the bonuses, they'll all quit. If they all quit, we won't have anyone to run these companies. And one of the other Democrats said, aren't they patriots? And, um, and Rubin said, not when it comes to money. So that's, that's the story. Um, I've heard it from more than one person. I believe that it is generally true. Uh, the Democrats felt, with Bernanke saying that we were about to have no economy, uh, with the oh, entire world shaking, that they didn't have any time. Um, so the bill was written and passed on the second try, and there was nothing in it at all that permitted the United States government to do anything to change the management <laughs> And the idea that there would also be prosecutions after they had kept the people in place, that was problematic. This was stark contrast to the bailout of the SNL industry in the 1980s. So just to give you the statistics, 1,100 executives were criminally prosecuted. In this case, the number was zero. But the reason was because of the time pressure that was created which actually was uh, intentional by Paulson and Bernanke. Now, that's the way it was, and that's just trying to answer your question about the, about the why. 
Um, Boyd, they wanted to open the door to at least not paying the bonuses. What this did to uh, Obama and to the Democrats was exactly what uh, was intended by the perpetrators, which is that it shook to the core the message of hope and change that he had run on. And uh, it's the single event that nobody ever forgot about the Obama administration. And to this day, nobody uh, forgets it. That's how it happened. No. I don't know. The problem, I, I don't believe your narrative. The problem is I have difficult time challenging it. Um, that is, I think it was a cluster and then a word I'm not supposed to say on a podcast. Um, but the story that Paulson and Bernanke and Geithner tell is that they had been watching Lehman Brothers and worrying about it since kind of June as it became increasingly and increasingly insolvent, although it was still liquid. And then in September, when they had to rescue it, they all of a sudden discovered that they did not have the legal authority to do so. Um, and then they scrambled to do the best they can. Um, the problem is that if there is a systemically important financial institution, and if it is insolvent, and if its insolvency is threatening to grow, then the only non-incompetent thing for a financial regulator to do is to find the legal authority to shut it down immediately, you know, as a clear and present danger to the financial system, something that has to continue to pay in order that everything doesn't fall apart. And if it can't pay, um, then you either merge it into somebody who does or you shut it down and take receivership over it. Um, and so I have a very difficult time understanding what actually happened in September. Um, Certainly, I don't think Paulson, Bernanke, and Geithner wanted or intended what happened, um, but how they got to rescuing Bear Stearns in the spring and then not rescuing Lehman in the fall, and in the spring, everyone relaxed and said the party can still continue because the Federal Reserve has guaranteed everything, and in the fall, they said we better liquidate our portfolios because it turns out the Fed has guaranteed nothing and doesn't know what to do. Um, I would like to say that a financial bailout does not have to be unpopular because the, um, the playbook is, in fact, well-established and has been well-established since the Bank of England's rescue um, in 1825 of the Bank of Paul Thornton and Company, which was at that time run by E.M. Forster's great-great-uncle. Um, so can I just that, add one thing? Um, just yeah. one thing? Yeah. So and maybe you would take some more questions as you wish, but just one thing. There was another bailout at the exact same time, which yeah. was of General Motors. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, the way that was handled was it was put in the hands of Steve Ratner and yeah. a team of private equity people, and they their very first decision was to fire management. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just saying No, this is what they did that over there. And they did the opposite in the banking sector. No. Banks are no. much harder this to run is, than automobile companies. This is the Why don't we uh, take when a, some when more a questions? When a financial crisis comes, I, you lend but, freely but, at a penalty rate on so, collateral that is good in normal times and make sure no banker yeah. is happy that they went through this. As I said, banks are much harder to run than automobile companies. There were two, uh, there were, that was there a joke, two, by the way. There were two uh, questions related that we should finish up before. There was a debt question and there was the electoral college question. Uh, I, I, All right, I, quickly, I, I, debt. What's the interest rate? If the interest rate is zero, um, as it is for the federal government now, um, 
How many of you have things you could do if you could borrow money at zero that would be useful and productive and you would eagerly do if, in fact, you just had to pay back the principal and not the interest at some point forward into the future? And, uh, and the answer about the Electoral College, yes. in short, is this. Um, uh, if the national popular vote picked the president, uh, then there is no question whatsoever uh, that 20 to 80 million more people would vote because that's roughly speaking the number of people that no one in either campaign actually tries to get to vote. No Republican candidate ever tries to get anyone of the potential Republican voters in California to vote. There's probably 4 million votes in, on the Republican side in California alone that uh, no one ever tries to get to vote. So that's the first thing. There would be huge participation. Number two... Without question, without question, uh, if the national popular vote picked the president, number one, there would be a gun control legislation because it is so incredibly popular nationally. Number two, the United States would be spending in one way, shape, form, or fashion trillions of dollars right now to address climate change because the battle for public opinion on that topic has been won. The political battle is being lost, but the battle for public opinion is being won. And number three, there is no doubt whatsoever that we would have money uh, spent on infrastructure upgrades. Those are three core views that 60 to 70 percent of America is in favor of, and their votes simply don't matter. Uh, we're. Uh, I'm going to jump in. Not out of t- th- uh, things to say, but we are getting out of time. Um, give me one second because Reed right. asked a question earlier, and uh, in the interest of bringing the audience in, I didn't answer the question, but I want to answer do, it now, do, do. which is no, there aren't just those two alternatives. Do. There's a third alternative, and I think the third alternative is built around uh, the Green New Deal, and it's built around the Green New Deal for three reasons. First of all, because it's the most important issue, public human issue. Secondly, to the issues about democracy, because it presents a large public purpose, fundamentally at odds with the neoliberal conception of how politics works. And third, because the only way to achieve the Green New Deal is not simply by thinking about policy, now, whether it's carbon taxes or cap and trade, but you have to think about changing the politics. Those three things, I think, make the Green New Deal both the most important thing to do and also from the point of view of an alternative to neoliberalism, the one that's most promising to do. You're up. Okay, as we wrap up tonight, now, um, I know our panel is going to stick around for a few minutes afterwards. And if you want your book signed, that's certainly uh, an option for you. But I'm always looking forward. I'm in the the wealth management business, and we're trying to figure out what the hell is going to happen next. And having this esteemed panel here tonight, I just want to quickly, before we walk out of here tonight, pose a question to the three of you. It seems like the economy is doing pretty well. Unemployment's practically as low as it can get. GDP's going up. Uh, You know, everything on paper feels great, but it does feel like we're kind of in like a Red Bull-fueled economy on thin ice, and something's going to snap. And we're seeing that with the stock market volatility, and there's a kind of a general nervousness. The next 12 months in our country is going to be exciting with the economy and an election. Any forecasts that the three of you have around the economy or politics, just 
something you feel strongly about? I, I can answer this. Don't buy and sell based on the polling, but I definitely would short Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's one piece of advice. Okay. Anything else you want to add? Anything you think is going to happen in the next 12 months that, that we should be thinking about? Um, you know, well, there always are risks and markets always will fluctuate. You know, the next recession will not come out of an outburst of inflation that leads the Federal Reserve to tighten interest rates. And it also won't come out of any of the financial or economic risks we clearly see because people have managed to hedge against them because they see them, it will come as 2007 did, as 2000 did, as 1992 did, out of something unexpected. And how large it will be, we do not know. What we do know is that when it happens, the Federal Reserve does not have the room to fight a recession and that the government, the rest of the government, which could, you know, by borrowing and buying useful stuff and putting people to work, really doesn't look like it will. Um, so the next recession is likely to be relatively deep whenever it does come. On the other hand, equities, which are the most vulnerable asset class to a recession, are still yielding 4.5% in real earnings terms, and you won't get that anyplace else. Um, in the economy. So all you can do is hang on to your asset allocations and pray because the risks are large, but there's nothing better to do. I am not going to answer the question quite in the terms in which it's intended. Um, so when I look forward over the next 12 months, um, what I see is uh, three really huge unaddressed problems that will not on which no headway will be made in the next 12 months first of all uh, a situation in healthcare that's uh, really horrible for lots and lots of people it's the number one issue politically on people's minds uh, secondly catastrophic conditions in the climate they won't improve over the next 10 uh, uh, 12 months and third a disgusting a level of inequality in the in the country, which is not going to abate over the next 12 months. So I'm going to keep my uh, equities, um, uh, no better place to put my resources. But those three issues, if you ask how is the economy functioning, I'd say how is the society, how is the world functioning, those three issues are horrible and they're not going to get any better over the next 12 months. Well, on that good news... Uh... <laughs> Take your vitamins, uh, go for a hike on Mount Tam, stay healthy. Thank you all for coming tonight. And uh, we have an event Thursday night at the Buck Institute. If you're interested in that, this may be a fascinating event. And then we have one more event at the end of this month. So take a look at commonwealthclub.org for details. Thank you all for coming.